So let yourself come back in and find a way to sit that's comfortable and at ease. In the past number of weeks on Monday night, and especially since uh, September 11th, while we've had some conversation about world peace and world events, it's felt also important just to return to some of the most fundamental and basic (coughs) Buddhist practices and teachings that are useful for stabilizing the heart and as a kind of reminder of what's possible even in difficult times. We start um, this week to get into the end of the year season beginning with Thanksgiving and then into December and all of the holiday events. And so I thought I would return, um, as I have in some previous years, for these next four weeks, to go through the Buddhist teachings of the Brahma-viharas, or the the Brahma-viharas is the um, divine abodes, the abodes of the the gods, Um, but they're really described as um, the abode of the awakened heart. And in Buddhist psychology, which is primarily a psychology of reminder, uh, we are reminded that it's possible for every human being to shift from the small sense of self that we are lost in, in our days, the body of fear it's called at times, to shift from that identity which is small and from which there arise need and fear and anger and confusion. And in releasing the small sense of self to return to what is called our true nature or our Buddha nature, which is innately open and generous and wise and loving. A story from the Christian Desert Fathers of almost 2,000 years ago in the desert, Egypt, There were two old fathers who had lived together for many years, and they never quarreled. Now one of them said, let us try to quarrel once, just like other people do. (laughs) And the other replied, I don't know how a quarrel happens. And the first elder said, well, look, I put this brick between us, and I say, this is mine, and you say, no, it's mine, and after that a quarrel occurs. So they placed a brick between them, and one of them said, this is mine, and the other said, no, it's mine. And the second replied, indeed it is yours, so take it with you, please. 
and they went away unable to fight with one another. Central to the psychology of the Buddha, or the psychology of awakening, is this reminder that for each of us there is, when the heart opens and clears, a natural loving-kindness and compassion, a natural joy, and a natural equanimity that are inherent to this human life. In this particular season or time, especially with all that's going on in the world, um, this work of the heart is terribly important. Dorothy Day, who started, I think she started as anyway, one of the key figures in the Catholic worker movement, she said, if our cause is a mighty one, and surely peace on earth in these days is the great issue, and if we are opposing the powers of destruction, of annihilation, of greed and hatred, and working on the side of life, then surely we must use our greatest weapon, the forces of love that are in each one of us. To stand on the side of life, we must give up our own lives for love. When one begins to speak of this first of the divine states of the heart, the first natural states of loving-kindness, it's really mysterious. Nobody can quite define what is love. There's an openness and connectedness and sympathy, beauty. It is a little bit like gravity. Science has the word gravity, and sure enough, actually, it's fun to watch um, eight-month-old and one-year-old sitting in their high chair because they always like to test gravity. They'll throw something off and see if it drops to the floor, and then you pick it up. And they'll say, I wonder if gravity's still working. And try it again, you know, and you get to pick it up. This mysterious thing, and there's the word gravity and a few scribbles of formulas on, you know, people's blackboards in physics departments. But actually nobody knows what gravity is. It is this cosmic force that one poet called allurement, where the bodies of the world are attracted to one another. The planets and the stars and the suns and moons and beings. It's amazing, isn't it? But we are. It's so mysterious. And on his night of enlightenment, as the story is told, seated under the Bodhi tree, when the Buddha experienced a great freedom of heart, liberation, there arose in him as well a deep compassion as he looked around the world and saw beings everywhere who want to be happy, often doing the very things that would create unhappiness for them. And so he resolved to go and speak and say, why not live in this joyful way? It is really possible for you as well as for me. The Metta Sutta, which is the ancient, the translation of the ancient teachings of loving-kindness. This is the work of those who are skilled and peaceful, who seek what is good in this life. 
May they be able and upright, straightforward, gentle and not proud. May they be content and easily supported, unburdened, with their minds calmed. May they be wise, not arrogant, without desire for the possessions of others. May they do nothing mean or that would be censured by the wise. And may they live with loving intention, wishing, may all beings be happy. May they live in safety and joy. May all beings, whether weak or strong, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or yet to be born, may they all be happy. Let no one deceive or despise any other being, nor by hatred or anger wish the slightest harm to another. But as a mother watches over her only child, willing to risk her life to protect this beloved child, so with a boundless heart should you cherish all living beings, suffusing the whole world in every direction with loving kindness. Sitting, standing, walking, or lying down during all of one's waking hours, remain mindful of the heart of loving kindness, for this is the way of living that is best in this world. Very simple, universal, obvious in a certain way, and yet 2,500 years later, we're still struggling as a species to learn these, not just as a species, but individually in our own lives. And yet they come, these qualities of love and compassion, as a natural outgrowth of the opening of awareness, of seeing clearly, of just sitting in meditation and listening to our bodies and hearts. In a moment we can step beyond the small sense of self and recognize that what really matters to us is love. Robert Johnson, the Jungian analyst, puts it this way. He says, curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It is more disrupting to find that you have a profound nobility of character than to find out you are a bum. <laughs> sort of hard to believe in there. It's also not easy, whether it's on the world stage, as we can see, or in the closest intimate relationships to have an honorable relationship with another human being is one of the hardest and most important and most beautiful things that we can do, but not easy. I often will tell this story of teaching a retreat probably 20 years ago or so. 10-day retreat with a hundred or 200 people of the kind I've been teaching for many years. And it was the last day of the retreat. And I'd promised people that in the morning before we finished the retreat, I would lead a long meditation on forgiveness and loving kindness as part of the conclusion to the retreat. Uh, so I was finishing my breakfast and 
had a few minutes before going into the meditation hall, and so I made a phone call to my girlfriend of the time. And she was upset with me because I hadn't done something she wanted me to do. And I got really upset with her because she was supposed to meet me. We were going to travel and do this whole thing, and she wasn't sure she was going to do it, and I felt it was a great betrayal. And we really started into the argument with one another pretty adamantly. And then as we were arguing and fighting, I heard in the background, (laughs) and I said, excuse me, I have to go to the sitting and um, lead a loving-kindness meditation. (laughs) I'll call you later, dear. So I went in to sit, and all these people are there with their eyes closed, looking very beatific, which is the way it is at the end of a retreat. Not at the beginning, but at the end. And so I began in my best kind of, you know, loving-kindness voice to say, okay, close your eyes, breathe gently, you know, picture someone that you really love a lot, starting one at a time, and wish them well with the heart's intention. May you be peaceful, may you be safe, may you be held in loving kindness. And I would pause between each of those, and then I'd start thinking, I'm going to call her back, (laughs) and I am going to tell her off. Now think of someone else you love, I would say. Picture them and offer them some loving kindness. And not only that, she did that before, and I'm going to tell her, and I was just getting working myself up. Now think of yet another person you love dearly, right? Back and forth. Fortunately, I had meditated for some years, so I knew that the mind will do anything, and it has no pride, right? And it just does stuff. So I'm just, it was like a ping-pong tennis thing, going back and forth, saying these words of love and kindness, and being outraged and angry. And actually, by the end of it, I had chilled out a little bit. Not completely, but some. Called her back, and eventually we worked it out. But it was a great lesson in the fact that loving-kindness can't be done in some idealistic way, and especially with the people that are close to us. Um, It really requires a willingness to accept this life as it is, and to accept another person as they are, to accept our own mind as it is, and love it anyway, believe it or not, in spite of everything. In some way, I believe that half of spiritual life, certainly for those of us in the West, is self-acceptance. Because we have so much judgment and self-hatred and anger, and when we blame ourselves, which we do, then we go and we blame someone else from our wounding. Remember that cartoon from Jules Pfeiffer, typical Pfeiffer cartoon, but there's these two people, and the um, woman is kind of reaching out her arms to this man who's standing in the corner with his arms folded, kind of drawing back from her. And the little bubble from her mouth says, But I love you. And he looks back and he says, Don't you threaten me. And even spiritual practice can get in the way of being genuinely loving if we have too many ideals about how we're supposed to be or how another person is supposed to be. I think a better word than loving-kindness or metta, 
the Dalai Lama puts it simply, he said, why don't we just put the emphasis on the kindness? Just that simple. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi talked about meditation practice when we sit and breathe and pay attention to all these things and try to receive them with the spirit of loving kindness. He said meditation is like baking bread. You put it in the oven, you bake over and over one loaf after another, and you mix up the flour and the yeast and you bake a new loaf. And after a while the kitchen begins to smell really delicious, good smells. And we bake, we put ourselves in the oven. We bake ourselves in some way in meditation. The kindness over and over. I really think that the freedom that we seek in Buddhist practice, the invitation for the sure heart's release, comes not through our will, but by letting go, by opening, by trust, by love. So simple. And as we know, it's contagious. That's Mahababa's word. We catch it from one another. So there's this lovely story of a woman on pilgrimage to Tibet in this book, Karma and Happiness, a Tibetan Odyssey. And after a lot of troubles, because when one goes to Tibet, one both sees the sorrows of the Tibetan people, but also you're thrown back into a different world which is not as protected and comfortable as the American, you know, standard American style of, you know, SUVs and air conditioning and whatever it is that you have. Anyway, so she had been sick traveling there and they'd had some difficulties and then she came to this monastery and was going into this little temple where she was invited, it was a nunnery, and because the doors were so low, she, so low, she hit her head on the door and really whacked and almost knocked herself out. And the whole thing was very difficult. And, and then she got into the temple and she noticed, she said, this tiny elderly nun wearing a maroon robe a sweater and a hat with prayer beads around her wrist. I smiled at her in my pain and she walked over to me. She radiated such kindness that I felt chastened, cared for, and exhilarated all at the same time. My attachments, my resentments, my fears, delusion, sadness melted away in a moment to reveal this Buddha nature. No longer did I need to defend myself my ego, because I didn't have that self in her vision. Feelings of goodwill just rolled over me and I could afford to forgive myself, my family, and everyone else in the world. I was connected with all beings. It seemed so simple. We were all blessed. Even the oppressive government officials, everyone, I felt such gratitude in her presence. We catch it from one another when we forget somebody reminds us in a gesture or a look or a moment of care. Now the story I really want to tell this evening, which is very short, but it's probably the most important thing I'll say tonight. And you may have heard this. You know in those eight, was it, Western Westerners were rescued from Kabul in Afghanistan recently, the ones who'd been missionaries, basically, and held by the Taliban for ostensibly trying to convert people to Christianity. It was nighttime, or it was getting dark, and there, were heli there was a helicopter sent to pick them up, and they could hear it overhead. Um, most of you saw this on the news or heard it. 
Um, but the helicopter didn't quite know where to land or lower the rope ladder or whatever is to get them to safety. And so they made a fire. Everybody's heard this story, I think, this so much so far, to kind of illuminate where they were, these women. And what did they have? They had nothing to burn, they lit a fire. So they took off all the veils that they'd been wearing to protect themselves, to keep themselves safe in the Taliban's version of the Afghan society. They began taking off their veils and throwing them to make this bonfire so the helicopter could see where they were. Well, there were a number of Afghani women with them who were around them who didn't understand exactly what they were doing, but they saw the women taking off their veils to make this signal fire. And they began taking off their veils and throwing them in the fire as well, because not as a signal fire, they didn't know that, but because if these women were going to burn their veils, I'm going to burn my veil too. Somebody starts, somebody's willing to say, I love you, even in the middle of conflict or a fight or difficulty, to have that audacity, if you will, or that humility is another word, that courage, that fearlessness of heart, to say, I love you, no matter what. And it communicates like the veils. It's time to let go of all that has held us bondage. Now, traditionally, in loving-kindness meditation, when one does it as a systematic practice, we start with ourself because we contain everything, and that's how we know the world is through our own heart and mind. And if we can't love ourselves, if we don't forgive ourselves, if we don't know how to hold this human life with tenderness, then what we judge in others, and what we judge in ourselves, rather, we will so much equally judge in others. Pema Chodron writes at one point, if we were to make a list of the people we don't like, people we find obnoxious, threatening, or worthy of contempt, we would find out a lot about those aspects of ourselves that we have difficulty facing. So we start with ourselves. The Buddha said you can search the whole vast tenfold universe and not find a single being more worthy of loving kindness and compassion than the one seated right here in this body. Because if we can't love ourselves, what good is this life? And then, as we begin, we see that to truly open to ourselves means to open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that make up our life. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who writes the line, Separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through the human heart. This line shifts. Inside us it oscillates with the years, and even with hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained, and even in the best of hearts there remains an uprooted small corner of evil for we carry it all within ourselves.
how much mercy and compassion is needed if we are to truly open to ourselves and our lives, to the ones that we live with, our loved ones and family and friends. There's nothing else that really heals. The Buddha saw this so clearly in his teachings, and he told the truth. Angulimala, who was one of the Buddhist figures, uh, he was a serial killer in this story and was chasing after the Buddha, at least in one version. And the Buddha said to him, Take out your sword, Angulimala, and I will teach you something. Cut off the limb of that tree if you think you are so powerful. And Angulimala drew his sword and cut off the limb of the tree. And the Buddha looked at him and said, Now put the limb back on and bring it to life. And Angulimala said, I can't do that, sire. And the Buddha said, The power you have is cheap. Angulimala. Destruction is easy, but to nurture that which is beautiful is the great power of life. Then the Buddha went on as he did many times. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And it's so in our intimate personal lives, in our relation to our bodies and minds, our lovers, our friends. And it's so across nations and religions. There was a man, a Tibetan Kampa warrior, who resisted the communist Chinese invasion into Tibet and joined a group of warriors that stayed in the mountains for some period after the Chinese took over Tibet, fighting a kind of guerrilla war. And because the Chinese found out who he was, he was one of their leaders, he went into the man's village and killed many of his family members, his parents, his sister and brother, one of his children. Terrible, terrible story. And the man continued to fight until he was captured. And then he was thrown in prison, and he was in prison for 18 years. And then he managed to escape and walked over the Himalayas and came into India, where he met uh, his old teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, one of the great old yogis of Tibet. And he told this terrible story to Kalu Rinpoche of all that had happened, and his years of prison and the, you know, the incredible suffering at the hands of those who had killed everyone that he loved. And Kala Rinpoche said, there's only one thing for you to do. You must immediately shave your head and become a monk and enter our three-year, three-month silent retreat and do three years of practice of compassion for your enemies so you do not die with hatred in your heart. That was his answer. Imagine that, even in the face of that. Martin Luther King, who says, Gandhi resisted evil with as much vigor and power as the violent resistor, but he resisted with love instead of hate. True pacifism is not unrealistic submission to power or evil. 
It is a courageous confrontation of evil by the power of love. This approach of love and nonviolence does not immediately change the heart of the oppressor. It first does something to the hearts and souls of those committed to it. It gives them new self-respect. It calls up resources of strength and courage that they did not know they had. And when it reaches the opponent, it so stirs their conscience that reconciliation becomes a reality. Thomas Santolino's poem, In the evening you will be examined on love. No matter what course you think you signed up for, that is going to be the test. So this is, we're coming into the week of Thanksgiving, and it's a beautiful time in a way of gratitude. It's the only major American holiday that doesn't have a lot of sales products. Oh my God, you know. Gratitude for the lives we've been given, gratitude for and thanks for the blessings around us, gratitude and thanks for the inner awakening that has come to each of us, for that freedom of heart that we may find. What a time to express gratitude. We can each sense within us the possibility of living with gratitude, of living with greater loving kindness and compassion. And what senses us, senses that in us, is the place that knows love. Is, it is our Buddha nature that says, yes, I know this is possible. Even more love is possible out of this one, myself. Even more compassion. And in some way, in the deepest way, it's what we long for, to love and be loved. Buddhist psychology is so simple about this. In this world, we will meet both pain and pleasure. Anybody not have one or the other? And they keep changing. It's impermanent. Moments of pleasure, moments that are sort of neutral, moments of unhappiness or pain, moments of pleasure again, back and forth. Pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, unpleasant. There's no one in this human realm who doesn't have suffering. It is woven into the fabric of life as much as beauty is. So what do we do with this life, with its beauty and its pain? I just had a ceremony for a group of people who have been teaching and going through a, a long many years of teacher training, just completed um, here at Spirit Rock. Um, a few days ago, the last of this particular training that included Philip Moffat and Sally Clough, some of you have practiced with them, and Ralph Steele, who's an African-American Dharma teacher from New Mexico and a dear friend. And after they bowed and we did a whole kind of formal ceremony, then each one was sitting on the teacher's seat and was asked to just say a few words about what they were intending to do in their role as a teacher. And Ralph looked out and he said, 
It's so simple, he said, I don't want people to suffer. There's so much suffering in the world, and all I want to do is let them know that there's another way, that the Buddha taught a way to face the sorrows of life that we're given in such a way that we do not add suffering to it. It was a very moving moment because it was so simple. Yes, there is suffering, and a lot of it, warfare, racism, injustice, starvation, the kind of things that we know are rampant in the world, most of them are caused by human greed, human hatred, and human ignorance. And yet within us, the one who knows this place of wisdom realizes there's another way. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, if you want to see the brave, look to those who can forgive. If you want to see the heroic, look to those who can return love for hatred. So we sit and we learn the trusting of the heart, the possibility of the heart, of loving kindness, that the greatness of this heart, the capacity of your heart is in fact great enough to bear the tears of the world and the beauty of the world and that you can do it. It is your birthright. And we hear it, so many different stories. I had a friend who went down and was working with the poor campesinos in Central America, in Guatemala and in Nicaragua. And she spent a long time in this one village doing health, education, and medical things and so forth. A kind of middle-aged woman with a love of service. And then after a couple of years in the village, she said she was going to return back to her home in America. And the family that she stayed with said, you know, when you go back to America and you get older, if they want to put you in one of those homes that they do with old people up there, don't let them do that. Come back and live with us. We'll take care of you. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, that's the village. It's so simple, and it's so fundamental, and yet you hear it and you go, yes. The Buddha first taught the systematic loving-kindness meditation to monks and nuns who'd gone out into the jungles in the forest and met all these wild animals and were frightened by them, and ghosts and spirits in the caves and tigers. He said, I will teach you a practice that will make the heart fearless. He taught this systematic practice of loving-kindness and forgiveness. It's still good for animals, but it's even better for human animals. So, a little story, because some of these stories are, you know, very grand, but some need to be small, you know, each day. Once a cook at our monastery was feeling very unhappy. Like most of us, she kept feeding the gloom with her actions and her thoughts, and hour by hour, her mood was getting darker. Then she decided to ventilate her escalating emotions by baking chocolate chip cookies. Ah, relief. But her plan backfired. She burned them all to a crisp. 
At that point, rather than dump the burned cookies in the garbage, she somehow decided to stuff them into her pockets and backpack and went out for a long walk in the wilderness. This is from, this is at Gempo Abbey, which is a Tibetan monastery in Nova Scotia. She trudged along the dirt road between the fields, her head hanging down, her mind resentful, saying to herself, so where's all the compassion and beauty this practice is supposed to be about, you know? And at a moment she looked up, and there walking toward her was a small fox. Her mind just stopped. She held her breath and watched. And the fox walked closer to her and sat right down on the road nearby and gazed expectantly. She reached into her pockets and pulled out chocolate chip cookies. The fox ate them, many of them, and then slowly turned away. She came back to the monastery and told all of us, saying, I learned that today life is so beautiful. Even when we're determined to block the love that is there, it will get through to us. <laughs> the little fox somehow taught me no matter how shut down we get, we can always look outside our cocoon and connect with the heart of the Buddha. So it's in little ways, but also in big ones. Ramdas, who writes, says, uh, "Where is this passage? Oh, come on, Ramdas, I know you're here." Well, he says something like, see if I can remember it in my mind here. Oh yeah, there it is. Um, to me, that's the power of Gandhi or Buddha, of any single person who isn't vulnerable. Don't underestimate the power of the human heart. When I look at the human heart, that link, that doorway, I see an institution that makes the Pentagon and the arms suppliers of the world look like kids' toys. In Thailand, I once visited a monastery called Wat Tamkaborg. And Wat Tamkaborg was the largest drug treatment center in uh, Southeast Asia, founded by an abbot who not only took the 227 vows of a Buddhist monk, eating his meal that he collected out of his bowl and living in a very simple way, but he added 10 more vows, which included never taking a ride anywhere. So when he needed to go to Bangkok, which was about 120 miles away, he would just walk there. And then he would walk back. Um, and a variety of other vows. He was a pretty amazing guy. He'd actually been a Thai narcotics officer whose aunt was an old Buddhist nun that was really a saint. And one day he came to her complaining about all the trouble with the opium addicts and the heroin addicts and the cocaine addicts. And she said, you know, Sonny, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> Here, you come and be a monk and train with me and I'll show you how to do this. So he did train with his aunt and then set up this large monastery. 
And you'd think, well, they teach loving-kindness or meditation to the addicts, but not at all so. For one thing, when the mind is really caught in addiction, you can't meditate. The center of gravity is the addiction. Um, But instead, people would come in for a 10-day treatment period in groups of 300 or 400 at a time. had a number of monks helping them. Um, and they would shave their heads, and because it was a culture of a lot of faith, they would bow and they would take certain vows and really connect themselves with the spirit of the Buddha. And then, instead of a meditation practice, you know, they'd be given vows for that time to, in the, for those ten days, to not harm and not use and so forth, and a safe environment. And then they would be given this herbal potion from his aunt, this herbal remedy, that made them so sick, a kind of purgative, that they didn't even feel the addiction because they were just busy throwing up for the next four days and cleansing their body. And after that, they were given certain purifications and work to do. And it had, the, it had or has the best treatment record of any such place in, in Asia. Um, they would make links to places that they would go back in the village so that there was support afterward. But more than um, two-thirds of the people who went through a 10-day program um, remained uh, sober, clean and sober after that. And you look at it and you began to think, well, what is it? Is it the herbal remedy? You know, is it the monastery? Is it the, um, their faith in the Dharma that gets reawakened? But one way to understand it is that it was really the abbot, because everyone would come and sit and bow to the abbot. And he was like this redwood tree person. He was as big as a redwood tree in his spirit. And it was somehow that he would look at those who came, and his conviction and presence was bigger than their addiction. It was so strong that even their addiction would waver in the face of that much love and that much truth. And that's really what transformed people. So when we sit and we practice loving-kindness meditation, we begin really simply. You're supposed to actually start with whatever brings you closest to love. You know, some people can't do themselves. They do a benefactor first, someone who loved you, because loving myself feels too hard. Do a benefactor. I, I think I've told this story not so long ago in here, but one of our teachers at Spirit Rock, my good friend James Barris, was going to do a long loving-kindness meditation retreat. And he was thinking about which benefactor to begin with, the Dalai Lama, who he'd studied with and really loves, or his dog. You know, because your dog loves you. You come home and it looks at you and it just loves you, right? Your dog, so... Who should I do, you know? Because the idea isn't to make it hard, but you do whatever opens your heart and then you move on to something else and you keep opening the door. So he had this little inner conversation while he was sitting there meditating. He imagined talking to the Dalai Lama, should I use you as a benefactor or should I use my dog buddy? (laughs) Dalai Lama said, whatever helps, you know, he's so kind. Whatever brings loving kindness, fine with me, no problem, you know. (laughs) And then he said, I imagine going home and seeing my dog and asking him, and my dog looked up at me and started wagging his tail and saying, ha, 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 me, 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 me. <laughs> so he did his dog. 
and then the Dalai Lama, right? The invitation is to start where we are and find that which we love and then add someone else that we love a little bit and something or someone else that we live a little, love a little bit and let it gradually grow in us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. It does not put on airs. It is never rude or self-seeking. It is not prone to anger. Neither does it brood over injuries. Love does not rejoice in what is wrong, but rejoices with the truth. There is no limit to the forbearance, to its trust, its hope, to its power to endure. So we do a little loving-kindness meditation at the end of this talk before we go. If you like, put yourself in whatever posture is easy and gentle for yourself. Sometimes we begin with a forgiveness practice, but that's for another evening. Or sometimes one begins a metta, loving-kindness meditation, by the recitation of its blessings that as the heart grows in loving-kindness, our dreams become more sweet, and we fall asleep easily and waken contented. And as we grow in loving-kindness, we have better health, and angels love and protect us, and men and women will love us as well. And weapons won't harm us, poisons won't work, and if you lose things, they'll be returned to you. And as your heart grows in loving-kindness, people will welcome you everywhere, and your thoughts become pleasant, and animals will sense this and love you, and elephants will bow to you as you go by, it says. I don't know. And your babies are happy in the womb and growing up, and if you fall off a cliff, a tree will always be there to catch you. So with your eyes closed, just sitting, let yourself come back to your breath and body as if you could breathe gently in the area of the heart. Quieting down. And with each gentle breath, you can plant the seeds of loving-kindness through simple words of intention for yourself, if you can do it, or for a benefactor or loved one who opens your heart easily, picturing them or feeling yourself. I'll use the self, but you can use them as well. May I, or may you, if you're picturing someone, be filled with loving-kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in body, and mind. May I be peaceful 
and truly happy. And linking it with the breath in some gentle rhythm, each time we inwardly say a phrase, it is the intention that matters. Sometimes you'll feel it and sometimes you won't. Sometimes it brings up its opposite. But even if you feel angry or hurt, may I hold my life with loving kindness. May I be safe from inner and outer dangers. May I be well in body and mind. May I be peaceful and truly happy. And feel how you cherish your life. Again, the image from the Buddha is of a mother holding her beloved child. To hold your life with its sorrows and its beauty, with a loving and tender kindness. May I be safe. May I be well. Or whatever phrases or words express your heart's kindness. May I be peaceful and truly happy. And think of someone you love a lot, care for, bring them to mind. As you picture them, the same phrases. May you be filled with loving kindness. May you be safe from inner and outer dangers. May you be well in body and mind. And may you be peaceful and truly happy. Picture another person you love a lot, or two even. The same seeds let the heart open as you picture them. So there's the image, the feelings if they come, but most importantly, the intention. May you too be filled with loving kindness as you see them. May you be safe from inner and outer dangers. May you be well in body and mind. 
May you be peaceful and truly happy. And just to go through some other categories that the loving-kindness meditation can expand from ourself, our loved ones, a benefactor, let yourself think of a neutral person. That is somebody that you see periodically, but you don't know well. You might not even know their name, but somebody at one of the stores where you go or where you, you know, around where you live or work. Just picture somebody that's there, but you haven't really gotten to know. And wish them well, just for the love of it. May you too be filled with loving-kindness. May you be safe from inner and outer dangers. May you be well in body, and mind. May you be peaceful, truly happy. Now for the next one, Picture a somewhat difficult person, not your worst difficult person, that's too much, but somebody who's difficult. (sighs) Try it, see what happens. There they are, struggling away, difficult though they be. May you be filled with loving kindness. Just envisioning and imagining that. May you be safe from inner and outer dangers. May you be well in body and mind. And may you be peaceful and truly happy. And finally for now, just simply let the feeling of the heart's loving kindness fill the whole room of all of us together and spread from this room across the hills and fields and out to the Bay Area and all of the beings, human and animal, others, and the whole of this continent, North America, out across the oceans and the world, as if you could picture holding the whole of the earth in your arms as a child, every being far and near, 
young and old. May all beings be held in this great loving kindness. May all beings be safe from inner and outer danger. May all beings be well in body and mind. And may all beings be peaceful, be happy, be free. From Rumi, love is reckless, not reasoned. Reason seeks a prophet. Love comes on strong, consuming herself unabashed. Yet in the midst of suffering, love proceeds like a millstone, hard-surfaced and straightforward. Having died to self-interest, she risks everything and asks for nothing. Love overcomes all fulfills all, understands all, and heals all. So you might work with the practice of loving-kindness in traffic jams, in line at the supermarket, with your toddlers, or with your parents, or various people in between in your office, and see, it's kind of interesting, there you are sitting kind of doing your work in your office, and then you take a, a three-minute secret loving-kindness meditation break, right? And you wish well to the various people around you. Don't be weird. Don't let them know, right? You're just doing You don't have to visibly do anything. And then see how the office feels after just three minutes of one name after another wishing them well. It will transform it. It becomes a different place. A couple of announcements and a very simple ah chant before we go. The blankets again will collect over a number of weeks for Afghan refugees, and there's millions of refugees, and it's really cold in Afghanistan. There's not much we can do, but this is one thing we can do. So blankets, sleeping bags, quilts in good condition, and checks to the American Friends Service Committee, if you like, we'll put a little sign out there. And if you have kids who are here in the Monday Night Kids program, the kids are going to collect blankets too, so let them bring them over to the yurt so they'll have the pleasure of piling them up and jumping on them before they send them to the kids in Afghanistan. Also, one person here needs a ride to San Francisco. Is there anyone who can offer a ride to the city um, over there? Would you raise your hand? Excuse me? Oh, you need a ride to Mill Valley. I'm sorry. For two people, can you, here's your ride right here. Okay, thank you. So let us just do this very simple chant in the text of complete 
and perfect enlightenment of many thousand verses is summed up in this one sound, which is the seed syllable ah, which means just the syllable of letting go or opening. This the summary of wisdom to open the heart. So we'll just sing ah and then go out into the autumn evening. Ah, 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 add harmony to it. Ah, 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 says the Buddha, just as the gradual fall of raindrops fills the water jar, so in time the heart becomes overflowing with loving kindness. Try it. You'll enjoy it. Thank you. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.